0: This morning, we're going to keep going in Romans. So if you have your Bibles want to turn there, Romans chapter 6, we're going to look at the first half of this chapter here together. And so this is a series, a continuation of the series we've been in for a little while. Specifically, I want to talk today about the power to change, okay? So it's not necessarily uh, the power to change a culture. It's not necessarily power in general, but it's the power to internally change within, specifically how to access this power you and I may not always know is available to us in this moment. Uh, One of the stories I heard from two weeks ago was out of Houston, but a friend of mine shared this, how uh, there was a family that was there, and kind of like a lot of different families, they were waiting for the electricity to go out. They'd they'd heard the rumors. They knew this was coming. They knew the infrastructure wasn't good where they were, and so they were waiting for this to take place, and sure enough, this whole family sitting in the living room, and then all of a sudden, the boom takes place, electricity goes out, and they just start sitting there in the darkness, waiting and waiting and waiting. It gets colder in their house. The temperatures begin to plummet. They're hungry. They're not able to use their appliances or anything like that. And the hours keep piling on each other, 10 hours, 12 hours, 24 hours. They sleep on it. They go to bed 36 hours. It's the next late afternoon. And it's just this entire time they're getting desperate and they're getting worn out by this, by by the, the loss of electricity. And they go outside and they look around and they begin to say, hey, Everybody on our on our street seems to have power, and they're going, "Hey, this is really, what's up with that? Like, why does everybody have power and we're the only ones that don't?" So they go back in, and they're going, "What's going on?" They call, they can't get through to anybody. Finally, Dad goes into the garage. He goes out to the circuit breaker, flips open the lid, and he's like, "Oh my gosh!" The whole time, 36 hours, power was available, and they didn't know how to access it. And they're sitting there freezing, and they're sitting there in the dark tiny little candlelight, and everything's dwindling down. And the entire time they had access to power, they just didn't know how to flip the switch. And the reason I bring that up, like, Paul's going to be going there in our passage today. He's going to say, hey, believer, like, that's not how you have to live. This isn't the way that you have to live. Like, you don't have to embrace the darkness and the cold and call it normal because you think everybody else is living that way. You don't have to embrace this. It's not the way that you have to live. Even if this is a seasonal kind of affliction that you're going through right here. Like even if it's a seasonal storm, you find yourself in this little funk where you don't really wanna do anything. You don't really wanna change anything about how you are and what God may wanna do inside of your life or anything like that. Like what he's saying right here is it does not have to be that way. Even if you're sitting there kind of going, hey, it's 2020, it's 2021. And it's just a different kind of year. There's a lot of other pain and, and I just don't wanna deal with these things over here. Even if you're getting to the end of your life And you're looking back and you're kind of going, hey, um, like it's not how I want it to play out. It's not how I want it. Like I wish there was a better story that I could have passed on to my kids or my grandkids and they could have seen what it is like to to know and to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul's going to say is he's like, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to get comfortable in the darkness and in the cold. And so I want to go there today in this passage. I want to talk about how you and I can access the power uh, to live in the newness of life. This is what he's saying. It's not just a theological righteousness he gives. It's not just a, a theoretical thing that he's giving to us or anything. There's a very practical, very tangible newness of life we just got finished singing about that you can have access to. Today. And so that's what I'm going to jump into. He's going to begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Again, if you're just joining us in this series, uh, here's what's going on. I'm going to get a little quicker in these synopsis here so that we can understand and speak fluently the language of Romans here. But this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the first century church in Rome. This is an early gathering of Jewish and Gentile believers, meaning uh, people with religious background, people with irreligious background. And they're coming together and they're figuring out okay, how do we be unified as one? And what Paul is saying here is, hey, you can be centrally unified, you can be totally together because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the incredible victory that's been won for you in Jesus. You can have unity around this gospel message. And so the whole letter is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he gets into it in chapter 3. Here's the, here's the bad news and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though there is none of us who are righteous, not even one person on the planet, he says, it has got bad news all over the place. There's none of us who are righteous, not even one person. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the righteousness of God is still available to you and to me through faith in Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. And this is the good news of the gospel. You don't get it right. You don't always get it right. You're going to be sitting in darkness. You're going to be living in darkness. The word of God says we were born into darkness. We continue to live in the darkness. And in the middle of that darkness, God fixed his love on you and me and the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to come and to do for us the things we could not do so that you can live in newness of life with him now and for all of eternity. It's why Paul's going to go on and he's going to say, there is no boasting for the believer in Jesus Christ. There should, not be any, there should not be this self-righteous attitude, right? Like God has done everything that we could not do for us in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And so chapter six comes, and he's going to be dealing with one of the major objections to this kind of theology, right? This is a, this is a problem for a lot of people. He's going to be dealing with one of the major objections to, hey, this righteousness which is gifted to you simply because of faith, legitimate saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he comes and he begins with this question. He says, what shall we say that should we continue in sin so that grace might increase? And what he's doing, he's, he's, he's answering this objection. This is a question that he's listening to people in the church. It's churning. It's, there's a lot of these questions stimu, being stim, kind of stirring around. And, and he's going, okay, I've heard this. And so he asks this question, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may Increase, and the reason he deals with this is because at the end of chapter five, he begins to address this. Keep in mind, there's a largely Jewish audience here uh, in this first-century church. The Jews had a background of religion; they had the law, they had the incredible law, and so believers are coming in the new covenant in Jesus Christ, and they're going, "Okay, I, I'm hearing about this grace in a different way, that, and, and I don't know exactly what to do with it. And so, what do we do with the law? You know, it seems like you're minimizing, it or you're lowering it a little bit, but like, what are we supposed to do with the law?" And so, like, what is the purpose of it? And so, at the end of chapter 5, he addresses that, and he basically says this. He says, okay, obviously, other places, there's a lot of different purposes of the law. One of the purposes of the law is it's going to raise our awareness of sin. This is what the law does. And if we did not have the law, we didn't have Leviticus, we didn't have Numbers, Deuteronomy, we didn't have any of the law here, right there, like, you're not going to know exactly what holiness looks like, necessarily. You're not going to be aware of it very much. And so you could become entitled. You could think that there's not much of a disparity between us and a holy God. And so he says, one of the purposes of the law, it's going to make you very, very aware of your sin, right? You're going to read Leviticus. And you're going to be like, uh, I'm not able to follow this law. You're going to see the Ten Commandments and not only the Ten, but you're going to be on that. And you're going to be like, I am not good at this thing. Like, I'm a massive, massive failure. Here's God's holiness. Here's me over here. There's an enormous gap in between us. And what he's saying is it's going to raise our awareness here. But in doing so, you're going to also become that much more aware of the enormity of God's grace that has been poured out for you. This is one of the purposes of the law. And so in that context, he says, okay. Some of you are going to be looking at this and he's going to be saying, okay, what should we say? Do we continue in sin so that grace may increase? This is what he says. Where sin is increased in chapter five, grace abounds all the more. Well, should we just continue in sin so that grace can abound? And and, and so this this isn't a question that a lot of us specifically ask today, but it is a question of, okay, is grace a license to continue to sin? Is grace a license to continue in unrepentant sin or to not take sin very seriously? And so we're not sitting here going, hey, should I continue that grace can abound? But we are sitting there kind of going, hey, what's the big deal if I'm covered in grace? I'll never forget this time that uh, uh, all my boys, we would always go to this lake. And this is the thing we do. We called it meat retreat. Uh, we bring steak, meat, ribs, the whole thing. We only eat things that are cooked on the grill. I feel like that's how life should be lived. Uh, I won't have a long life that way, but it'll, it should be. Anyway, um, so we would always go do this retreat. And we'd go out to the lake. And uh, we noticed one of our one of our friends, he on the retreats, he started, he, he developed a drinking problem. And we're like, okay, this is not, this isn't really something we've seen in you before. And uh, it wasn't just, hey, I, I'm enjoying a glass with my dinner or anything like that. It had taken it further. And, and we were, were like, okay, this is not normal. What's going on? So we asked him about it one time. And we said, hey, we're seeing this thing in you. What's going on, man? This is not your story. This is not who you are. And um, you've never abused it like this before. What's, what's going on? And, uh, and he just went on this kind of story. He's like, bro, you don't even know the things that I've been through with my, my family, my work, my kids, this is going on over here. He's like, I'm battling this sin over here. I'm battling this. I'm dealing with temptation over here. He's like, this one, I'm just chalking up to God's grace. Like i this is all, this is just, I, I, this is just grace. Like I'm throwing it on grace. Like there's a lot, I've got a lot of other things to worry about in my life. This one, I'm just chalking up to grace. And so this is what he's dealing with. This is—is is grace a license to continue? In that? Is it a license to think flippantly or think little about the continuing, ongoing nature of sin uh, in our life? And so Paul jumps in there and he says, "No, that's no, nonsense." Verse two: "It may it never be." He says, "Heck no!" If you want to get really, really strong in the Greek, uh, stronger. And I won't say that online, but he says, "That's no, nonsense." That's that's terrible thinking right here. And what he does is you would think that he may go into some very practical reasoning at this point in time. It's not where he goes. He gets very, very theological, and he points the believer to the baptism story. And so he says this. He says, okay, how can we who died to sin still live in it? It makes no sense. How can we who died to sin continue to live in it? Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death we were buried with him by by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so again, question, should I continue in sin that grace may increase? No, of course not. But the reasoning he gives is the story that's communicated here in baptism, which is essentially two things. There's two things that uh, we can boil it down to and say, this is what took place at conversion, which we tell the story of in baptism. Number one is about death. Then number two is about resurrection. That's too. But we see this in the baptism story. You get into the waters, and the minister will come in, and then we'll say, okay, I baptize you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are buried with Christ in baptism as you go underneath the waters. And what you're saying here is, I am identifying with the death and burial of Jesus Christ. I'm now dead to myself. I'm dead to my sin. I'm in agreement with what the scriptures say about the wages of my sin, which is death, Right, It's all the symbolism, it's everything that's taking place, it's a story being told, I'm buried with Christ in baptism, but then we come out of the water and we say, but you were raised to walk in newness of life with him. And this is the time when all the people in the church were celebrating, we're clapping our hands and we're celebrating and we're, we're so happy because we are recognizing that in this baptism story, we are not just saying death to sin, what we are saying is there's a brand new life that's available in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and it is available to you and to me. That is a celebration of the baptism story. It's not just death to sin. There's a newness of life that's available to you and me. It's why we practice immersion over here. And we, 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 we take that sort of seriously. It's not just because the Greek word, it does literally mean to be fully immersed. That is it. It's baptismo, But immersion is what the story, it's the thing that communicates the story the best. I was reading about it actually in a a lexicon this past week, and I thought it was really funny where the word came from and kind of how the story developed. But he says you can trace it back to the 2nd century B.C. with this, uh, uh, it was a Greek poet and physician named Nicander. But he writes about these words, and he uses this word, baptismo um, and bapto, in 200 B.C., in a recipe for making pickles. Really weird to find this here, but he says this. He says, in order to make a pickle, the vegetable should first be dipped, bapto, into boiling water, and then be baptized, baptizo, in the vinegar solution. Verbs, both verbs, concern the immersing of vegetables in a solution, but the first is te- temporary, and the second, the act of baptizing the vegetable, it produces a permanent change. Isn't that kind of weird to find in a lexicon? You're like, okay, look, I got a little recipe here for making pickles here. But this is the story of immersion. Like, this is what's taking place. I am fully immersed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, buried with Christ in baptism, but I'm raised to walk in the newness of life. Church, how else would it take place? I mean, think about what takes place in salvation. What's wrapped up in that, hey, the newness of life which Christ came to bring in you. Like, there's so much wrapped up that took place theologically at that point in time. Number one, he's given us a brand new righteousness. Like, there's a brand new right standing before God, whereas I'm not coming before him anymore saying, hey, look at the law. Look how awesome I was at the law. Like, look how great it was at church attendance or whatever it may be. No, 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 no. He's gifted us his righteousness. There's a brand new right standing in Jesus Christ. There's a brand new identity. He's given me the right to be called a child of God. We've been adopted and grafted into his family, whereby he is our heavenly father. We are now the beloved child, man or woman, that he loves. And we have a brand new identity. We're called holy and beloved and righteous and all these different kinds of things. He's given us a new heart and an indwelling Holy Spirit. Like this is brand new. He says this in Ezekiel 36. This is the time when um, Israel is in captivity, they're hopeless, they're in despair. And so the prophet comes and he says this, he's pointing him to the future and he says, take heart, I'll give you a brand new heart and I'll give you a brand new spirit at some point in the future. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and I'll move you to follow my decree so that you'll carefully keep my laws. In other words, I'm going to give you a brand new heart and a brand new spirit that is going to do something new in you to where you actually want to follow me. To where it's not just an obligation, it's not... It's not difficult, it's, it's not as difficult. Like, there's, a, there's a thing going on inside of my soul that's brand new inside of here where, where you want to go and to follow me. It's why Jesus is gonna say in John 16, hey, it's actually better for you that I leave and ascend to heaven so that the Holy Spirit can come. I don't know if you remember this scene, but he says this, he says, it's to your advantage that I go away because when I do, the Holy Spirit, your helper, will come. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna convict the world of sin and righteousness, he says. He'll guide you in all truth, and when he does, it's always going to be glorifying to me. Can you imagine this scene if you're one of the disciples? You've walked with Jesus for a few years, right? This is, this is the thing. He's preparing them for his ascension, and they're sitting there going, hey, we cannot imagine life apart from Jesus. And many of us think that same way. You think, hey, it would be so much better if Jesus were sitting on this front row, and he were a part of my life group, or he was always sitting there in my marriage, It would be so much better than that. And what he's saying here, no, no, no. It's better for you that I leave because when I do, you're going to receive the helper, the paracleto. Sorry, that was a Hispanic accent that was just wrong. But the paracleto right here, um, that was just all off. But uh, that's the word right there. It's, It's a word that means the advocate. This is who he is. He's an advocate. He's a voice for the voiceless. And in the Hebrew, it's going to say the word Azer. it's a warrior, someone who's fighting on behalf of someone who can't fight for themselves. This is who the Holy Spirit is. And this is who's given to you at the time of salvation, Ephesians is going to tell you. Um, He convicts the world of sin and righteousness. This is who's living inside of you at the time of conversion. He comes inside of you and he convicts the world of not only sin, saying, hey, it's time to repent, but also of righteousness, telling you, hey, here's the direction to go. Like this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He guides us into all truth, meaning he illuminates the truth of his word, and he gives wisdom for you to be able to discern the specifics in any given moment in time. In Romans 5, back in verse 5, I skipped over this part last week, but it says that one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is that he pours out the love of God into your heart. In other words, in those moments when you most need it, in in those timely moments when you're feeling like, hey, I'm completely unlovable, there's nothing about me that, that, that deserves to be loved by a holy God. The Holy Spirit living inside of you is going to remind you that, guess what, that's exactly when he demonstrated his love for you in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. While you were weak, while you were still in sin, God demonstrated his love for you. And so you don't have to sit there and wondering, okay, like, is there love of God for me? One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit, he's going to remind you of that love in those timely moments, Acts chapter 1, he's going to fill you with power. And in Galatians chapter 5, as you surrender to him, he produces his life in you. And over time, as you continue to surrender to him, he produces things in you, things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Church, here's the point. The point is he has provided everything you need to walk in newness of life today. Like that's what the baptism story reminds us of. There's not only theoretically a newness of life, he has provided everything that you need to walk in newness of life with him today. In other words, you and I don't have to have that fatalistic attitude that says, you know what, I'm never gonna be able to change. Woe is me. Oh my, nothing's ever gonna be different. Like like what's the point? Nothing's gonna ever grow. Nothing's gonna develop. What's the point? Like uh, nothing's ever gonna change in my life apart from him. Like I could do absolutely nothing. Church, the whole point of this passage is You're not apart from Him. It's true. Apart from Him, you can do nothing. But the whole point is, in Christ, you're not apart from Him. He has provided everything you need right now for the newness of life. And so Paul's sitting there, going, "Like, what's the excuse? Why? What's the excuse? Like, you were raised to walk in newness of life, and so why in the world would we choose to live in the dark? Why would we do that? Why would we choose to sit there while the temperatures are dipping below freezing? It makes no sense." And so back to the original question here, like, if all of that is what's already happened theologically inside of our soul, then why does it feel so difficult sometimes? Like, like how do we walk in that newness practically? Because obviously, the theological explanation here, it's not always going to be sufficient in that moment to bring about the change we want to see. I mean, Paul's going to talk about it in the very next chapter. He's going to say, okay, find this thing in me that I hate. I don't do the thing I wanna do and I do the thing that I hate. And Paul's the one teaching us all the theology. Paul's the one who knows it better than any one of us. And he's still recognizing this tension inside of my soul that you know what, there's seasons of my life, there's pockets of my life. Guess what, it seems like I'm just living in darkness when there's a power source out in the garage that's available to me the entire time. And so church, like practically, how do we walk in that newness in a practical way? So it's the question Charles Duhigg Uh, tried to address in his book, The Power of Habit. And I love the way that he does this here, but he says essentially there's three things that are necessary for change in your life. Number one, there's gotta be a recognition of a problem. Number two, there's gotta be a desire to fix that problem, a desire for change. And then number three, there's actually gotta be a plan to change. And so he says, if you don't have all three of these things, there's you're probably, you're probably not going to be very much change. And the reason I like his examples of this in this book, I think we're going to see a very similar pattern here in our text. Paul's going to take us there and he's going to essentially show us, hey, the plan to change is essentially by addressing those first two things right there, the problem and the desire. And so he gets into this and he says, okay, the problem with problems are that it's not always easy to see your own problems, right? And we know this, like the problem with problems, it's not always easy to see our own problems. So He tells a story about the beginning days of Febreze as a company. You guys know this spray? I I lived on it all throughout the college days. Um, It's the only reason I'm married today, but uh, it saves lives. It's incredible. But in the early days of Febreze, all it was was a spray that eliminated odors. This is before they added a scent to it. And these people are coming together, and they're trying to figure out, okay, how do we market this? How do we market this spray? How do we sell it? And so they start doing all this market research, and they find this lady who... Has about fifty cats living inside of her home, <laughs> and they think to themselves. They, they, they go and they find this lady, and her house is rancid. It smells. It's disgusting. It stinks. And and they're thinking to themselves, like, hey, okay, this is gold. This is perfect. Like this is going to be so obvious to her. It's going to be wonderful. And so they come in, and they do the uh, they 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 do the whole um they they do the whole routine. They spray the house down, and the team's sitting there going, Hey, this is this is incredible. Like we don't even smell these cats anymore. This is an amazing spray. And so they ask this lady, and they say. Um, they say, okay, so what do you think about this spray? Do you think you'd ever buy it? And they're fascinated by her response. Her response is this. She goes, I can see why a lot of people may like this spray, but the problem is I seem to have these genetically superior cats that simply don't smell. <laughs> and they're sitting there going, wait a second, come again? Like, what? Come on, like, like you've got to be kidding me. But it's then that they realize, okay, the problem with the problems is that it's not always easy to see our problems, it's exactly what Paul's dealing with here in this text. These people are sitting there going, okay, should I continue in sin so the grace may increase? In other words, they can't, even continue, they can't even see the problems with continuing in sin as a regenerate believer. They can't even see the problems with that line of thinking. And So Paul's sitting there going, no. He's like, are oh, you kidding me? You have to see the seriousness of our sin even this side of the new covenant. You have to see the devastation of sin. You have to see, the, see it for the enslavement that it actually is. This is what he says in verse 6. You have to call it what it is. It's enslavement. He says this, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we no longer be enslaved to sin. This is what sin is. This is how it actually works. It is addictive and it is controlling by nature and it can easily take on a power over you even though you've been free from the power of sin. In verse 14, it can come in and seem to take control in different pockets of your life. It's why verse 21, Paul's going to say, it's completely fruitless and it always leads to death. This is what sin does. It's completely fruitless, and it often leads to death. It's what we talk about it all the time with Hebrews. Let us encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still cold today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what it does. It is numbing. It is dulling to our senses. It makes the believer become cold inside of their soul and what to run from the things of God, whereby God is right here. He's never left us nor forsaken us. Our attention turns from him. It has become cold and numb towards him, and it is problematic. And what Paul is saying is we have to be able to see the devastating nature of our sin. And so uh, this past week, I was reading an article that was talking about uh, the decrease in evangelism in the church. And it was just making the observation that, hey, the church used to participate in a lot more evangelism than they do today. And Arthur goes on and he says, hey, I think that there's two reasons for this. Number one, Christians don't have as much compassion for their neighbor as they used to. Number two, many people today believe that their life is not worthy of the testimony of Jesus Christ. What's going on behind that, church? It's the numbing nature of sin taking its toll, becoming cold, becoming hard, deceiving us of the things that are true, as if the testimony that we stand on is, hey, come to Jesus and look at me. You'll be righteous. You'll be good. You'll be worthy of this message or something like that, as if this message is not, come look at me, all of my brokenness, all of my depravity. God loved me anyway in the sending of his son, Jesus, and he came and he gave me a grace that is available to you today. I was listening to a missionary uh, a few years back, and he's off of the mission field, and, and uh, he, tells, he tells a story to uh, kind of some of his highlights of ministry. But he's off of the mission field, and he comes back, and he'd been in this place for a really long time, and he's talking about the, 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 the favorite community that he ever came across. And he says, it, it was actually not the place that I was investing in for most of my life, but there was this utopian, beautiful community that it came across every time I was going from point A to point B, I'd come across this place. It was in the middle of nowhere. Evidently about a hundred years prior, a missionary had come through. This entire small town, we're talking in the woods, no electricity, no anything like that. The entire village came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he goes, You would not believe the beauty of that worship in those gatherings. He's like, it was like nothing I've ever seen. They had no water. They had no, electric, they had no uh, electricity, running water, and things of that nature. They had no internet. They had no TV. They had nothing there. It was, just pu- it was just beautiful and pure gathering of worship. And he goes, about three years ago, companies came in and they brought for the very first time TV, internet, uh, TV, internet phones, technology, and power, and they brought everybody up into the modern age. And he goes, I'm not kidding you, within three years, this tiny utopian village, for the very first time, had their first case of domestic violence, divorce, murder, and rapidly declining church attendance. Church, we, we have to see the devastating nature of our sin. And we have, to, we have to understand, this is Paul's whole point, you have to see that, that, that there's a death that that is involved in, in our continuation in sin in our negligence of what's going on in our life. I mean, when non-Christian scientists are writing about how porn addiction is the thing leading to more ED in 20-year-old men than anything else, like we have to be able to see that's not a joke. Like I'm not a doctor, but that's not normal. Right? Like, we have to be able to see, like, this isn't a joke. This isn't just old school. Hey, this is some old writing that has no relevance today. Non-Christian scientists seeing the exact same thing that the Word of God has said. You know what? Sinful wrong. Not according to God's design for our flourishing or anything like that. Nothing that's honoring to Him. Hey, you know what? This is fruitless. It leads to death over here. We have to be able to make that connection and see what's going on. The article talks about how men and women, they talked about how it's leading to all kinds of things, porn addiction being, leading to all kinds of things like ADHD. Social anxiety, depression, concentration problems, OCD, dissatisfaction with the real thing at home. The point of the matter is like, it's not harmless. Like 50 cats living inside your home, untrained. It's not harmless. You leave them untrained, you leave them roaming inside your home for the longest time, it will stink over time. And so what he's saying here is we have to be able to see the problem. And more than that, we've got to be able to see that the problem is in ourselves. We can't just say, hey, cat lady, she's got a problem over there. Like, we have to be able to see, hey, this problem is inside my own home, which means there comes a time when you need to invite your community. You need to invite your trusted friends in honesty and vulnerability to come in and expect your home. I'll tell you, I, one of the things that I run into in counseling all the time, there's a way for you to go and engage in counseling, there's a way for you to go and engage your pastor in, in a trusted conversation that is not honest. There's a way to come in to tell your story that's not the entire story. You know what I mean? Like there's a way to go to counseling and say, I want help, but I really don't want help. And I'm gonna control the narrative. Here's sort of the problem. Here's not really the whole problem. There is a time when you need to come and look at your community different and say, I actually trust you. I actually trust that the Holy Spirit's working through you and I'm inviting you into the truth of my life in vulnerability, in honesty, and I'm asking you to help me inspect my home. This is what he's saying, like you have to be able to see your own problem. You have to be able to see what's actually going on. Hey, it's not just the cats over here. There's something going on behind the cats. Like, they're, 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 you have to be able to see what's going on there. And so sometimes what this means is that you and I are going to need to go out of here and you're going to need to look at your group, your friends, your trusted friends, your small group, whatever your people may be, and look at them differently and enter into a relationship of trust in a way you've never trusted before. And you give them permission to come and to expect your home. I'll tell you, I've, I've, received, I've experienced so much personal freedom and joy in having that group of people this entire year to be able to go to them and say, cards on the table, this is me. What is going on in my life? And for them to come in and to be able to help me discern what's going on. Sometimes all that means is that it's a different disposition towards your community. Other times what this means is that you need to simply be praying differently. Differently. Instead of God come and bless my day, God come and give me this, that, and the other. God come and give me the raise that I've always wanted. God come and give me a a, a great thing and peace and healing and whatever it may be. It's to pray like the psalmist says: Father, uh, search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts, see what's behind all the anxiety that I'm experiencing today. See if there's any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the path of everlasting. In other words, it's a shift in prayer that says, instead of God, I'm coming to you to come and to get the things that I really want. Father, I'm inviting you through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the reality of this new life that I have. I'm inviting you, God, would you come and examine my soul? Would you come and examine my heart? All the anxieties. All of the fears, all of the problems, help me see and understand what's behind me. And guess what? I'm not going to run to go off quickly to my day. I'm going to sit here in this moment, and I'm going to listen to what you're bringing to mind. I'm going to see the truth of your word, and I'm going to say, okay, Spirit, come and bring these things to light. Don't let me walk in continued ignorance. Chapter, this is what he's saying. like You have to be able to see your own problems. It's not just cat lady out there. And it's not always the obvious things out there. But God, I want to know what's going on inside of here. You'll never be able to see the change that you want to see until you're willing to deal with your own problems as they actually are. And so he goes, that's the first place. And some of us are there. Some of us are living in naivety or living in ignorance. Or maybe it's just willful disregard for the truth of what's going on. And I'll just tell you, I've seen this. I've seen this. There's a way to go and to control the narrative that is not true. And so he says, this is the place to begin. There's got to be honesty. You've got to be willingness to deal with your own problem. But he says, from there, there's a desire issue that's got to be addressed too. And so you've also got to be able to, you've also got to want to change. There's got to be a desire to change as well. And here's the key to this one. He says, I think this is fascinating. He says, your desire to change can't be like any other desire." It has to be stronger than all other competing desires, right? It can't just be a, hey, I want change. I want to grow in this area over here. Um, It actually has to be stronger than every other competing desire out there. And I think we see this all over the place, right? Like you say, or I may say, hey, I have a desire for abs, right? I have a desire to look like I did when I was 18. Uh, If my desire to eat what I want when I want to eat it do what I want when I want to do it, is stronger than my desire for abs. It's never going to actually take place. Like I can sit there and say, hey, I desire to have a clean home and a good smelling home. If my desire for fellowship with 50 cats that are untrained in my home is a little bit stronger, it ain't going to happen. And so this is what he's saying here. He's saying there has to be a desire to change. Now, here's where he says the rub is. And I love that he's being honest about this, but he goes, here's where most of us get stuck. What are you supposed to do when it's your desires that are the things that need to change? Like, what do you do when you sit there and go, well, yeah, I know that, <laughs> right? I, like, I know that desire kind of matters. This is the whole problem. This is like, this is what I'm talking about here. I don't want to do what I do. What I, I do the thing I hate. I, I'm not doing the thing that I want to do. Like, what do you do when you want to change, but you don't really want to change? Kind of like the audience here. They're like, why not just continue in sin the grace may increase? I love the life in Christ. I love this newness of life, but you know what? I kind of want to do what I want to do also. Duhigg says, this is the time that you've got to fixate on a greater reward. This is the time that most of us are fixated more so on the problem, and we're not seeing the greater reward. And he goes on to describe how our desires are often shaped by our pursuit of reward. And he goes, if the reward is really great, lesser competing desires tend to fall in line. If a reward is not there, neither will your desire. And so back to Cat Lady's story over here. Why didn't she want to buy any Febreze? Well, number one she didn't think she had a problem. Uh, Number two, the reward wasn't very strong. Why in the world would she want to eliminate the smell of her cats that she loves? This is her whole world. Why would I want to get rid of that smell? And so the marketing team, the business team, they kind of go back and they realize, okay, we're not getting anywhere right here. And so they go back to the drawing board. And I love what they do. They kind of reevaluate everything. They figured out, okay, let's, let's raise the bar a little bit higher. What's the real reward? What's the underlying desire behind this whole thing? And they realized that what she desired more than anything else, which is pretty much what most people desire, is when you finish cleaning your house, you want it to smell as clean as it looks, right? Uh, You don't want to do all that work and then it smells neutral or like it did before. Like you want your house to smell as clean as it looks. And so they go back to the drawing board, they add in a scent into the whole thing, And now every single commercial you're going to see of them is them uh, finishing up their cleaning ritual, whatever it may be, and then enjoying the scent of Febreze because we want our house to smell as clean as it actually is. Here it is, church. Like if the problem that needs to change is your desire to change, then you have to fixate on the greater reward. This is the direction that Paul is shifting us in here in this passage right here. He's going, hey, count yourself dead to sin. Yes. And at the exact same time, alive to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's not just death to sin, there's life that's here in Christ. It's not just death to what you may want. There's a greater reward over here that you may be missing in the process. In other words, like he is the reward. This is what he, count yourself alive to God. The word that he uses is logizomai, which is the same word God uses when he says, I credited to you my righteousness, I count you as righteous. This is what he's saying. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he is the reward. He is the reward, and through him, by fixating upon him, he does not just eliminate the stench of our sin. He cleanses us from the inside out so that you and I can smell as clean as we actually are. And through him, like we can walk in the newness of life. We can discover that guess what? It's not just death to lust over here. It's it's a brand new life that is full of love as Christ has loved us. It's not just death to this, it's life over here. It's a life that's not dissatisfied with the real thing at home and it's always competing in our heart and our mind. It's not just death to greed and to coveting over here. Like it's a life that is fully satisfied and content in him. It's not just death to personal comforts. It is a life that is generous and engaging in a global mission. It's it's not just death to my way always. It is life to God's way who is the designer of how you were intended to flourish. It's not just death to pride. It is life to a healthy self-confidence that is grounded in the truth of God's word. And it's actually the fruit of humility. Church, it's not just religion. There's a life found in Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh, God in the spirit living inside of you and me. Church, this is what he's saying. There's a resurrection after the crucifixion, meaning where you are today does not have to be the final word. Your addictions don't have to have the final word. Your sin, whatever the thing may be, it does not have to be the final word. Shame does not have to have the final word. Injustice does not have to have the final word. Sorrow, sadness, pain, affliction, despair, none of them get the final word because if there's a resurrection that comes after the crucifixion, then you and I can take it to the bank that there's a newness of life that you're intended to walk in today. But here it is, church, like, you cannot lose sight of the greater reward. And my hunch is that some of us may have walked in here today and that may be the problem that we're dealing with right here, where we're very, very aware of the problems in our life and how giant and enormous they are. But you've lost sight of the greater reward. And so the problems and the brokenness over here, they feel this big. They feel enormous. They seem huge. This is the thing I've dealt with my entire life. I've never been able to set free. This is just who I am. Deal with it. Accept accept it as it is. Deal with it. This is just it. And our problems and our brokenness look this big. And meanwhile, our God and our reward is this big in our heart. This is what happens when we get discipled more so by Fox News or CNN or social media. And we have this intake of fear. And we have this intake of problems in the world. And we begin being fixated upon these things. And so it's not shocking that we live in this place where our problems and brokenness are this big. And we say, hey, I get the problems over here. But what he's saying here is our God has to be bigger than those things. Don't just think of our life in Christ as death to sin over here. There's a newness of life that he's called us to walk in with him. So Paul comes in and he says, hey, you've got to fix your eyes on the reward. It's not just death. It's also life. Focus on him. He is the greater reward and through him is the newness of life. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. He will begin to change the problems and the brokenness in the process. Never forget one of my favorite stories from uh, a number of years ago, probably about 10, 12 years now. Sitting in my office at uh, at, at the church a while ago, and uh, this man walks in, and he comes in disheveled, and um, he's a very, very successful corporate executive, and he comes in saying, "Hey, I need to talk with a minister this day, and I happen to be there," and um, and so he comes into my office, and this man we'd never met, he says, "I'm not, I'm not a part of your church, I don't come." He goes, "I'm." I'm on my way to the courthouse to finalize my my divorce. And when he said those words his his you know his voice cracks and the man just comes undone in my office. And he begins just opening up and just saying he's just talking about hey there's neglect there's a there's addiction there's adultery and 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 she's got broken and he starts talking about all these different kinds of things over there as well and And he's just sitting there going, I'm completely hopeless. And we sat there and we just opened up the word of God. And over the course of a couple hours, I began to point him to the truth of God's word, the newness of life that's available in him, the grace and the forgiveness that could be had today if he would come to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. We began to just examine the truth of his word. At the end of this conversation, he gives his life to the Lord. He's hopeless. And it's one of these Hail Mary kind of things where you're going, you know what? I don't know. I don't know what's really, really going on inside of somebody right here. I'm absolutely hopeful, but you have no idea what's really taking place. But he goes, I'm, I'm in. I, I'm in it. I need Jesus to come in and change me. And, and for the first time, he began owning the stuff and the destruction in his own life. And he made up his mind. He was going to go back home, and he's just going to throw himself at the mercy of his wife. And so that's exactly what he does. He goes back, and he just And he says, he just throws himself at her mercy and he says, you have no reason to believe me, trust me, anything. I'm willing to get in. God is changing me. I want to be changed and all these kinds of things. A year or so later, I come back and, well, we actually get him plugged in and she, by God's mercy, comes in and decides to give him a second chance. And she gets into her stuff and her small groups and things like that. And he jumps into some different men's groups and begins growing like crazy a few years back, I had a chance to run into him in public, and I got to catch up and ask him and say, hey, man, how did, uh, it was great to see you, it was great to, to, to meet you. So what's going on in your marriage? And he goes, Aaron, can I just tell you, like, Jesus has changed everything in my life. Jesus has changed absolutely everything. And I'll just tell you, like, there's so much joy in hearing that. You don't know what's taking place in a Hail Mary situation where you're sitting there kind of going, I don't know what's real. I don't know if this is just, hey, I want to be saved from the destruction or something. Like, I don't know what's going on. But he just simply said, he goes, Jesus has changed everything in my life. He's like, I never understood why people would study and read the word of God, and I can't get enough right now. Like, this is God's word given to me. He's like, I didn't understand how people would sit there and just pray. I I love praying. He's like, the singing? I never understood singing. Why would people want to sing to God as a song? He's like, I get worship for the first time in my life. He goes, Jesus has completely transformed my marriage because he's transformed me. He's changed everything about who I am. And church, it's exactly what he's saying right here. When Jesus is your fixation, when he is your reward, he will come in and make brand new what you did not think was brand new. After the last service, I got done and started talking with a friend, and she came in, and I loved what she had to say to me. She goes, you know what? My story is very, very similar to that one, except my spouse never repented. My story was never fixed. But I realized the exact same thing that he did. Jesus is everything. And she goes, people need to hear that story, that when it's not the red bow at the end, and you don't get the thing that you always wanted, that Jesus is still your everything. My marriage was never healed. I never got the answers to prayer that I wanted, but in the middle of that place, I realized that I was so fixated on the enormity of my problems and how big they were in my life that I'd minimize the size of my God and how beautiful a reward he is. And when I was set free, I came into this understanding and I began to see my God as my reward and I began to see how enormous and beautiful he actually is and he provided me this joy I never knew was possible. Church, this is exactly what he's talking about right here. It's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter six when he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. We cannot lose sight of the greater reward. You cannot lose sight of the greater reward. And so Paul wraps it up here at the end of this chapter, and he simply says this, Church, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but here, instead do this. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And I want you to think about this image Present yourself to God as one who has been brought from death to life. You, have you ever thought about presenting yourself to God? The image that's right here is, is kind of like a presentation to a king. You know the enormity of this presentation. You know it's a big day. Like you know that there's a lot. And you're coming and you're presenting yourself to a king as one who has been brought from death. A death sentence that was previously there. That king lifted the death sentence. And now you're presenting yourself to that king as one who's been brought from death to life. Brian Stevenson writes about this experience in his book, Just Mercy. There's a movie about it also called the same thing, Just Mercy. I think it's absolutely exceptional, but his entire life's work is committed to seeking justice for people who've been wrongfully accused on death row. So his entire ministry has been pursuing that, and uh, he talks about the joy Of seeing someone rightly adjudicated and coming to and seeing real justice take place. And he talks about the joy of seeing someone come home from death row and what it's like for that person to walk into their home brand new for the first time. And of course, he acknowledges like there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of trauma, there can a lot of times be a lot of resentment and things like that. But he says, My job is to come and to help them transition home in a brand new way that they can experience newness of life. And he describes these scenes where they come home and it's just like this unbelievable burden that you've never experienced anywhere in the world. That burden is completely released as you realize, you know what, I'm crossing from death to life. Unbelievable joy to understand. You know what, there was a death sentence upon my life that has now been lifted and I'm coming home again. And he goes, my relationship with these clients, my relationship with these now friends is different than any other relationship I've ever experienced. We come home and when the, when the dust is settled and the pain of, of the years wrongfully accused and sitting in prison is finally lifted, he goes, there is a love and an affection that, that is vice versa in the middle of this relationship you cannot explain anywhere else. Church, like this is what it looks like to present yourself to God as one who's been brought from death to life. These people come in and there are hugs, he says, that are different than other hugs I've ever experienced. There are tears that are different than any other tears that I've ever experienced because they see, and this is not his words, because they see that he is the one that has helped them cross from death into life. And church, what I want us to see is that this is what God has done for you and for me. And not only that, this is his plan for our change. This is his plan for our change. He has taken us from death to life, he has helped us transition. From darkness, cold, and, and everything else to, to, to life over here, he's given us righteousness. He's given us a brand new standing before him. He has given us a brand new identity, a brand new heart of flesh that desires to walk with him, and to follow him, a brand new indwelling Holy Spirit, and all the power, all the victory that that brings along with it. In other words, he has given us every single thing we could possibly need to walk in the newness of life With him. Church, my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would not lose sight of the fact that he is your reward. There is unbelievable reward in knowing him and then through him, letting him set you free so that you can walk not just in death and burial and crucifixion, but that you can walk today in the newness of life with him. And some of us are there, we are sitting in cold, we are sitting in darkness. And we're sitting there going, yeah, guess what? Everybody else is doing the same. It's just the storm that we are in. And what are you saying? No, 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 no. There's a power that's sitting there in your garage. And it is waiting for you to turn this light on. You who are in Jesus Christ and you are found in him, there's a Holy Spirit in you that wants to come alive in you today and set you free to walk in this newness of life. And my hope for you today is that you would continually see him as the reward. That that would rise up and that he would set you free. That we would walk in that newness of life that we sing about all the time. Father, we do love you, God. We praise you. We thank you this day. We recognize you're the author and the perfecter of our faith, and so we fix our eyes upon you. Jesus, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who while we were weak, while we were still in sin, wanting nothing to do with you, God, you still fixed your love upon us. You sent your one and only son, Jesus, to come and to live the life we could not live, to die the death we were supposed to die, so that we can live with you now and for all of eternity. Father, I pray for that person who's coming in here today. And God, they're comfortable with the darkness. Maybe they're there and they're okay with it. They've never experienced the victory in different areas of their life. Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come in and that you would awaken them to the greater reward, which is Jesus. I pray that you would awaken them, God, to the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of us, that wants to set us free from the bondage is there. Father, thank you that you've already done that, but God, help us walk in it more so today. For the person that's come in today and that may be in defiance and maybe they're not dealing with honesty, God, I pray that you would give that person grace today. God, that you would strengthen their foundation, that they would be able to stand on this foundation of grace, and that it would allow them to walk in honesty with their community, with their friends and Father, that you would begin to bring to the surface the things, the problems, the difficulty, that is dysfunction that's there. God, that you can begin to set them free to walk again in that newness of life. But God, we look to you in all of these things and we confess you are the great reward. Jesus, come and elevate yourself today. Lift yourself up, Father. Be glorified in it all. In Jesus' mighty name that we pray, amen and amen.